This morning I'm reading 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'll be reading from the ESV. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Well, today we're going to begin exploring that passage that Natalie just read for us in 1 John, it's one of the most beautiful passages in all of the scripture that's filled with substance and with meaning. Um, but before we go uh, there, I'm gonna start with a little bit of an introduction, um, and it's, it's more of a confession. So I grew up in a home where music really was not at all something that happened in our home. Um, the radio was never played with one exception, uh, we had a radio station that came in very, very strong in, in, in my home. It was W-O-W-O, Wo-Wo. Um, and yeah, it's, it, was a, it was a terrible station, let me just tell you. you know, and we would listen to that for the weather and for all the farm reports. Okay, so I could tell you what the corn futures were and what, you know, how wheat was doing, but I had no clue of any popular music bands growing up. I knew nothing. And, and so the only thing that I was exposed to growing up was what was on television where it was a compilation record um, by KTEL. There were commercials that would be on, and they would play a snippet of one line from every song that was on that record. And that's what I knew of the whole song. And to this day, I drive my wife absolutely crazy because that's all I know of any song. But every now and then, those little snippets they, they sneak up and they go, oh yeah, that's important. That was a really good song. That was a poet in the modern age asking a question that we need to ask. And so somewhere deep inside of me, the wannabe rock and roller that I am are all those little snippets of songs. And when I come to the book of 1 John, the song that just screams in my head is the one I'm gonna now put in your head, at least for a little while, The great rock ballad from Tina Turner, Play It. (laughs) But a life of great pain. The reason that she sings that song is because of the incredibly abusive relationship she had with her husband, Ike Turner, who um, repeatedly would beat her. Even though she was the famous one, even though she was the one on stage the one that was bringing in fame and opportunity and money, Ike, out of his bitterness and insecurity, would beat upon Tina. And so she grew up in those early years of her adulthood with a very distorted view of what love is. And so she asked that question, what's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? It was a good question for us to ask because many people today see love as an emotion, 
as a response that we have. It's a, a warm feeling in our heart that is supposed to bring satisfaction to our souls. But love is not an emotion. Love is a choice, and love is an act of sacrifice. It is found in freely giving of oneself to another. Because love demonstrates the heart of God. We'll read later in this series as we, as we go through 1 John where he boldly proclaims that um, God is love. All love finds its root and source in the person and relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it is a, an expression of selfless sacrifice that is incredibly beautiful. We need to know what love really looks like. If we're to learn how to experience it, the love that God has for us, and how to share it with others. In this book, in the letter to 1 John, the central point right in the middle in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, is a definition of love. It's what the whole book is about. And I would say, in a sense, it's what all the writings of John, both in the gospel, these three letters, and ultimately in the book of Revelation, because he wrote all of these, it's its center point. And he says this, by this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters. That's love. Jesus defines what real love is, and he puts it this way. He says, love is the free giving of oneself sacrificially to and for another person. That's exactly what he did. Now, I want you to begin to think about that definition and see how it compares to, the, to what you think in your own heart and mind about love. And then secondly, if that is the definition of love that God himself, who's the author of love, gives, how are we doing at loving others? Am I willing to sacrificially give of myself for the blessing, for the benefit, for the good of another? Jesus in John chapter 15 gives us a commandment. Love is not just something that is optional for a follower of Jesus Christ. It is the very center of who we are. He says this in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, that's hard. Yes, it's easy for us to say we love other people, and certainly it's easy for us to say we love all other believers, but when they begin to irritate us or annoy us or offend us, do we love them as Christ loved us? Because the truth is every one of us have rebelled against him. We've treated him poorly. We've forgotten him. We've rejected him. We've abandoned him. And yet he loves us in a beautiful way. And he goes on to give us the measure of love. He says in the next verse, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the real measure of love is sacrifice. So I want you to think about that. If that is the measure of love, how are we doing? What have we truly sacrificed as an expression of love that gives worship to God and serves his purpose and rightly reflects his love towards us? Have I been sacrificial? 
Now, I want you to know that th- today's sermon, in fact, this whole series, it may not be for any of you. It may just be for me because this is what God is convicting me about. How am I doing at loving others sacrificially? So I've tried to, to put a, a basic working definition for myself of what love looks like because I, I need to know what it looks like so I can then begin to see how that definition translates into my relationships, how I'm to love my wife, how I'm to love my children, how I'm to love my neighbors, how I'm to love the church, how I'm to love strangers, how, am I lo- how I'm to love my enemies. And here's, how, here's the definition that I'm working with. True love is sacrificing oneself, dying to self to serve the good of another. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to un- unpack this from some, some of Jesus' teaching about a seed and also his, his great commandment where he says, if anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That instruction that he gives us is also the pattern of how we are to love. It's not just how we are to follow him. It's not just counting the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is actually a call to action about how we are to love. In fact, the only way we can love because that is the exact pattern of what Jesus has done for us. He laid down his life for us. So true love is sacrificing oneself, dying to self and to selfishness to serve the good of another. And as we, as we go in and what we began to read here in 1 John is we discover that just as Jesus produces life, when we replicate his love, when we represent him well, his love through us produces life as well because love is life-giving. When we die to self and serve another, there is a resurrection. There is new life that is given to other people and it is absolutely beautiful. That's why he commands us to die to self so that it can result in bringing glory to him and giving life to others. And that's what every relationship you and I have needs. If we want to learn how to love our spouse, if we're married, if we want to learn how to love our children, how to love our parents, how to love our neighbor, our brother and sister, our enemy, we need to follow his pattern and see that his call for us to live sacrificially. So the question of Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? The answer that John would give is absolutely everything. This is the core. If we don't get this right, nothing else matters. That's why in in the great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it goes through a great list. If I do all these things, if if um, if I preach the word correctly and boldly, if I have enough faith to move mountains and so that the mountains move from one place to another, but I don't have love, it means absolutely nothing. In fact, he goes on to say, all it is is a clanging symbol. It's just noise that's not only noise, it's annoying if we don't have love. That's what we're called to do. So here, I want to remind us of our purpose as we begin to to look at this passage here in just a moment. God created you and I, he created us to share his life and to show his greatness. That's our ultimate purpose in this world. We find our fulfillment by 
passionately loving God, loving others, following Christ, changing the world one person at a time by showing his greatness and sharing his life. That's why in 1 John 3.18, it says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. If we're to fulfill our purpose, then our love can't just be an emotion. It can't just be something that we say. It has to be an action that we live moment by moment, sacrificially. So if our purpose is that God created us to share his life and to show his greatness, then our mission is that we are to share God's life and show his greatness by actively loving him, living his truth, giving grace to others just as Jesus gave grace to us. Those are the values that we have here at ICP for us as a church. That's what we're called to do. And if our mandate is to act out of the love that God has given to us and to love others, then let us commit to becoming a people who love first. So often in our minds, we hold back our love waiting to see if a person will respond in a way that we want them to. That's not love. That's a negotiation. Jesus loved us, the scripture says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners. And he goes on to the next verse and, and, and expands on that word sinner. And he says, while you were his enemy, Christ demonstrated his love for you and that he died for us. That's how we are to love. We live in a world where there is just constant political debate. And even within the church, you see ongoing conversations and, and things that are posted on social media that all they do is become fuel to f- cause further and further division. Now, we want to stand for truth. And, and we're instructed, even in, in 1 John to live out our love in deed and in truth. So truth has to be there, but we have to love first. If we don't love first, there's no reason anyone should listen to our truth, to the truth of God. So let us commit to becoming a church, to becoming a people who love first in all that we do. Let that be a driving force. Let that be a drumbeat that resonates into our hearts so that our hearts begin to beat with it. I want to love people first. I want you to think about that person maybe in the workplace or maybe it's even a family member that just really frustrates you or a neighbor who's always, always playing their music right at 1130 when you go to bed, super loud and the bass is turned up and all you hear, boom, boom, boom. You know, it just like drives you crazy. How would God call you to love them first? Yes, that may include asking them to kindly turn their music down at that particular time of night, but you need to form a relationship with them first. Love them first. So how do we put Jesus' love into action? Let me give you just a few points uh, to begin with. First of all, we need to understand that God uses our fingerprints to reveal his identity. That is a beautiful principle of God's word. 
He has chosen you and I in the unique life and position that we have to represent his identity. In a sense, what he calls you and I to do is that everything we touch, every relationship that we enter into, we are supposed to leave his fingerprints on it so that they will see who he truly is. Last week, I I told you that we are to rightly represent who Jesus is just as Jesus correctly and accurately and perfectly represented who the Father was. That's our calling, is we need to make sure that our lives are showing the real identity of God in the way that we live. Love reveals first our true spiritual identity, whether or not our faith is real, whether or not our love is real. And then it is demonstrated by that love and it points people to who God truly is. Secondly, not only does God use our fingerprints to reveal his identity, but true love is a balance of action and truth. Little children in 1 John 3, 18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Both need to be there. But I want you to notice that love comes first because that's what opens up ears and hearts to hear the truth of God. Truth without action does not communicate the heart of God. Action without truth does not communicate the holiness of God. That's the balance that they have to have. Action and truth loved out together accurately like Jesus, however, communicates the hope of God to others. And that's our mandate, that we are to love in that way, in action and in truth. We are to give grace, love undeserved to others, just as Jesus has given grace to us. Let's begin to explore this this passage a a little more in depth. And um, and the actual, the the name of the series is What's Love Got to Do With It? Because that's going to be a theme all the way through it. But in these first few verses, the, the title really is, One is the Loveliest Number. And that, again, if you're, if, um, if you're my age and you remember snippets of songs, there's a song that, you know, one is the loneliest number. That, that you'll ever do three dog night, right? Anybody, anybody else want to do that one? Go for, sing it, sing it, Henry. Come on. Oh, man. You, you let me down, man. I was coming to you as my DJ. It's all right. Some, somebody, it'll be flowing through your head. Um. To God, one is the loveliest number. Let's look at that in mind as we look at these verses. 1 John 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, when John uses that phrase, the word of life, it's an echo back to um, the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, Actually, we had that passage up on the, on the screen, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and, and so it's a pointing to the person of Jesus Christ, but actually, as he's using it, it has a dual meaning. It points us to Jesus Christ, but it also points us to the gospel. He's saying the truth of what God has done through Jesus, we've touched, we've examined, we've seen, we've heard. What he's doing is he's, he's speaking as a pastor um, with firsthand experience giving evidence to his congregation because what we discover when we see the background of how this letter was written is that a lot of false teaching was creeping into the church. 
Most likely, this letter of 1 John was written to the churches of Ephesus and, uh, and the church at Colossae, and, pro- and perhaps the church at Philippi as well. Now, Ephesus is really significant to, to John because he would have served there part of the time as pastor during his life. But now, he, when he's writing this, he, he's very old. He's in his 80s. He's the only disciple of the original 12 left alive, and he has an incredible heart of a pastor, and he wants to counteract some of the false teaching that was being proclaimed into the church that he loved so very much. And so the theme of this letter is about love, just as Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus was that they had lost, excuse me, they had left their first love. John, as a pastor, saw what was happening in the church, that they were going astray, that they were following false teaching, and that they had left love behind. And so he says, I want to give you an accurate understanding of who Jesus is. So he's saying, I'm speaking to you as an eyewitness concerning the word of life. Verse 2, the life was made manifest. And that, and that reflects right out of what we looked at last week in 1 John 1.14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It means exactly the same thing. That God chose to clothe himself in human flesh and live with us, to come to us. He was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It's beautiful. Now, you look at that, and, and we have a tendency, um, if you've read the Bible for a, for a while, we have a tendency to often look at the opening verses of any of the books, and we kind of look at them just like introduction, saying, okay, he's setting the stage, and, and, but it's not really the important thing that he's saying. I believe with John, the opposite is true. He's giving us the most important things right in the beginning. He doesn't give a lot of preliminaries. He doesn't give a lot of greetings. He just jumps right in and says, this is important. I want you to have eternal life. Now I want you to notice something. He, he says to proclaim to you the eternal life. That's his purpose. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but when you think of eternal life, you instantly think of life after death and heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something you experience right now. Eternal life is not something for the believer who's trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It is not something that we wait to heaven to receive. Yes, sin is put away and there is a resurrection um, when Jesus returns and we get a new body. All those things are part of heaven and his return. But eternal life starts the moment that you trust Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit comes to live within you and he has come to give you life and it to the full. That's what Jesus' words are. He wants you to experience that here and now, not just when you die. That's part of the instruction that he has here. And so what he's, what he's urging us to do is to embrace the love of Jesus Christ. That's the first point here. It's a love embrace that he's trying to show us that eternal life is found in this relationship with God. And then he begins by 
by challenging some false teaching that had, been, that had crept into the church, and he asked us to not only embrace the love of God, but to embrace the history of Jesus Christ. John wants us to know that Jesus is absolutely real. He is not a myth. He was not simply a ghost. He was not as um, the Gnostics uh, assumed, which was a, um, a false belief system during that time. Um, he was not just a, a spirit that appeared um, or something that appeared upon Jesus at his baptism where he took on Christ. It is who he truly is from the very beginning. It is his identity as fully God and fully man. He's wanting us to see his historicity. That Jesus is not an embellished legend. He is not just a great teacher. He is eternally God. And he calls him the life and the word of life. What John wants people to know is that Jesus did not come to bring us a new religion. He didn't come so that we could leave one church and go to another one, to leave the temple and go to the church. He is not a human philosophy that will make your life better. Christianity also is not a code of conduct or morality. Jesus Christ is life. That's why Jesus said, and, and, and John recorded it in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When I ask people to tell me about their life spiritually, I often get a wide variety of answers. They may say, I was raised Catholic, or in high school I went to a Baptist youth group, or I'm a Methodist. All those things are great, and that's wonderful but that's not your spiritual life. Your spiritual life is Jesus. And the answer that John wants you to know, the answer that I desire you to know, is that when you're asked about your spiritual life, you're able to say with great authenticity, Jesus Christ is my life. He's not just someone I follow. He's not just a moral code. He's the very heart of, of my life, of who I am and all that I do because that's what he wants to be in you and I. John here is testifying as an eyewitness and he boldly states that this life that he's talking about, this eternal life is real, it is tangible. Um, he's heard... He's heard the message of Jesus. He's seen Jesus in the flesh. He listened to him. He, he, he touched him with his hands. He's saying, I know it. And I love, especially in the Gospel of John, how John always identifies himself by this one phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Man, my prayer for you is that you and I can learn to be the follower of Jesus that he loved, that that becomes our identity. Because you see, it's not about performance. It's not about comparing us to, to anybody else. It's about seeing that God loved us so much, he chose you just where you are, knowing everything about you. He said, I want you to be mine, and I want to give you my life. That's what John is saying to us. He's, not, he's saying, it's more than a lesson in a book. He's real. And the tone of the passage goes beyond that of an eyewitness. He says, I have experienced this life personally. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15. 
He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. If we were to take that passage and truly own it, what we would say is, then I experienced the Lord personally as well. That's our testimony. This is who Jesus is in history. But let me also tell you about him experientially about what he's done in my life, how he's changed me, how he's given me hope and life and love and purpose. God wants to give all of that to you. So John, as he's, as he's writing, is, is trying to pull back the veil to allow us to see a glimpse of what God wants to do in our life in giving us life. Later, John wrote, the revelation of Jesus Christ um, in which he saw the veil of eternity pulled back even further in an incredible vision of the risen Lord and the completion of all that God was going to do in history and the redemption of humanity through Jesus Christ that was one on the cross. And he saw incredible things. But the central theme of revelation is not events that will happen. It's not a timeline. It's about Jesus himself. So often when we turn to that book, we get confused because we, we look at all of the symbols that are there and, and, and it's very difficult to follow and to understand. Let me give you the key to understanding the book of Revelation. Read the full title. It is not the revelation of what will come. It is not the revelation of how we're going to order events in such a way, although there is, there is great information there. The title of the book is the revelation of a person, Jesus Christ. When we look at it from that viewpoint, we discover more and more of who Jesus is because we see him beyond his life and ministry on earth. We see a glimpse of who he truly is in heaven, of his deity, of his greatness, of his holiness, of his worth, of his beauty. So we need to embrace who Jesus is in history but John also encourages us to brace the humanity of Jesus. In chapter two, he says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has been made manifest, has dwelt with us. Because that same life, Jesus wants to have be manifest to you, to dwell with you. Being made manifest speaks of the incarnation where God became man, fully God and fully human in Jesus Christ. And this tells us, here's, that may sound real theological to you, and that makes it confusing. Here's what it means. God is knowable. That's what it means. The life was made manifest. God became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could relate to him. 
the love of God stepped out of heaven wearing the weakened flesh and bones of humanity so that we could embrace him as our Lord, as our Savior, and as our life. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, I want you to not only know in your head the love of God, I want you to experience it. And that's my second point. Love experienced. This verse is so important. John is saying, I want you to have what I have. John is the, who's, is the apostle who, at least from a human standpoint, was perhaps closer to Jesus than anyone else. He's the one that Jesus looked at from the cross and said to him, behold your mother, speaking of Mary. And to Mary, behold your son. He entrusted the well-being of his mom to John because John was so close to his heart. And what John in this passage is saying to each and every one of us is that God wants you to know him in that same way, that same closeness and intimacy. It's not reserved for a select few. Every believer can experience that kind of unity with God. That's his message. When he talks about fellowship, he's saying experience the communion, the common union with Jesus Christ and with the Father. It means sharing. The, the very root of, of that word fellowship is, is union with God. He wants us to share what Jesus shares with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's, a, it's what we celebrate next week in the Lord's Supper. When we talk about communion, it's a reminder that we're united with Christ. But he wants us to experience that not just when we celebrate communion, but every day, every moment. This is the heart of Jesus. It's what he prayed for in John chapter 17. Let me just remind you of that real quickly. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Again, that eternal life is not just life after death. It is eternal life now. In fact, he defines what eternal life is right here in, these, in verse three. Look at what it says. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is about being so connected, so united with God that it transforms everything within you. He is life. That's what he wants you to have. That's the good news we want to share with people. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about um, even a set of beliefs. It's about being united through faith with God through Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. Now jump down to verse 20. I love this because it shows you the heart of the Lord. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Our unity with one another proclaims that Jesus is sent by God. That's why it's so important to him. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. I want you to let that last phrase sink in for just a moment. Do you want to know how much God the Father loves you? Chances are you're sitting there and you're thinking, yes, I know God loves me, but here's a whole list of things where I've failed, where I've turned my back on him, where I've disappointed him. There's no way I mean, I know he loves me because he's God and he kind of has to love me. But what does he say? He says he loves you with the exact same measure of love with which he loves his own son who is absolutely perfect. If I was younger, I would go, but it looks silly when an old man does it, but I did it anyway. It should blow our minds. That's how much he loves you. And you didn't do anything to deserve it. Jesus did. Wow. He loves you. And he goes on to say, I want them to be with me where I am. That's the part of heaven. What makes heaven heaven is that all the barriers are removed and we are in the very physical presence of Jesus Christ. What we know to a small degree now becomes experiential in every facet of our being, every dimension of who we are. It becomes real. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is fully manifested there and we experience the greatness of all that he is. To God, he wants us to be one and one is the loveliest number that you'll ever do. God wants you to so know him right now that it's a, it's a reality, not a theory, an experience. He wants you to embrace. Well, there's some barriers because the problem is oftentimes we're not experiencing that kind of union with God. Oneness with God and with others is what was broken by sin and by the fall. And it remains severed through sin. And there are some, some barriers between us and God that need to be taken down. There are four barriers. The first one is the barrier of sin. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, then that barrier remains between you and God. Because God is absolutely holy. But Jesus Christ came to shatter that barrier and to take it and to nail it to a cross. All of your sin, all of my sin, all of our failure, all of our rebellion, all of our selfishness, he took that and he nailed it to a cross. And he says, that is no longer a barrier. And, and when he said, it is finished on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, opening the way into the very holy of holies in the presence of God where his glory dwelt. And he said, come in. But you and I have to trust in him. We have to receive his removing of that barrier, not try to earn it on our own, but simply say, Lord, I, I trust in what you did, Jesus. You take away my sin because I can't do it. That's the first barrier. And for every person who's trusted in Christ, that barrier is removed. 
Now, later in the chapter, next week, we're going to explore what we are to do with our sin because we continue to to disobey God. But he has great news for us coming up in verse 9. So you come next week because it's so cool. The second barrier, however, that you and I have is the barrier of distortion. In our selfish nature, we have a distorted view of God because we tend to think that God is like us. But through the cross, our view of God is transformed. When we see Jesus accurately, we see an accurate picture of God the Father. And once we see God truly, and we see Jesus dying innocently on the cross for us, then at once we see that God is a God of immeasurable love. Before trusting Jesus, we were afraid to come to God because he is holy and righteous. And we recognize deep within us that we don't have a right to come into his presence. But through the cross, Jesus invites us to come and see him fully and experiencing all that he is, to know him, to love him, and be able to obey him and have unity with him. In order to remove that distortion, we need to know his word. So I want to challenge you. Over the, while we do this series, read one chapter each day of 1 John. It's a really short book. But as you read it, ask the Lord, say, would you change my view of who you are? If this is eyewitness testimony of what you're really like, help me to see it and to understand it, Lord. Remove the distorted view I have of you because I want to see you accurately as Jesus has presented you and has, as the word has recorded you. The third barrier is likeness. The barrier of likeness comes from not living out of our new identity. Forgetting who Jesus says we are in him. Fellowship and oneness only occur when we agree with what God has said and we live for the same things that he calls us to do. What he has made us, what he saved us to be, we have to see that as our identity. God's work of sanctification is to make us more and more like Christ Jesus so that we can enjoy more and more of him. This is what discipleship really is. We intentionally seek to become more like Jesus so that we can better relate to him, experience his presence on a daily basis, and rightly show his love, grace, and truth to others. Ask the Lord to show you who you truly are in him. And then the fourth barrier is love. We must love who Jesus loves as he loves them. See, we need to allow the Lord to change our hearts to see others the way he sees them. Not with judgment, but with his compassion and with his mercy. In order for us to be one with God, we must love what God loves. And what does God love? He loves the other members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's why the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. If you're struggling in loving God, it's going to be a barrier for you coming closer, drawing nearer to him. And you need to ask the Lord to change you, to change your heart. The reason why we worship together, 
is because we want our hearts to grow closer to him and we want to lift him up for who he truly is. Secondly, God not only loves the Godhead, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God loves people. He has a special covenant love with all who trust in him, but he desires for everyone to know him. And so we are to love others in that same way. And what happens when we do is that we experience the community of Jesus Christ. We experience the family of Jesus Christ by embracing what he's done. That's how John ends verse four. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What he's saying is, is when you get it, man, that makes me happy. When you experience the fullness of what it means to really love and be united with God, I'm excited because there's nothing greater and Jesus is glorified through your life in far more powerful ways. That's the completion. He wants our joy to be complete. And when you begin to view others and pray for them that you want them to be made complete, to have immeasurable, overflowing joy in their relationship with God, even though you don't agree with some of the things they do, some of the positions or opinions that they have, when you begin to pray that way, it changes your viewpoint of that person and allows you to love them as God loves them in a beautiful way. Hebrews tells us that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' joy was you and me, and to be able to present us before the Father and say, these are mine. Is that your joy? Do you have a passion for the message of the gospel to see others come to have life in Christ? If not, you're missing out on the deepest joy that we find in our relationship because joy is meant to be shared. That's what this passage is talking about. How would Jesus answer what's love got to do with it? I think he would say true love is sacrificing oneself, dying to self, to serve the good of another because that's what he's done for us. So a couple of points of application as we close. First one is, have you received Jesus' love? If not, would you come talk to me afterwards or we'll have a place over here for prayer after, after the, the last song and someone, you can ask them, what's it mean to trust in Christ? Or could you pray with me? Could you help me? We wanna encourage you to do that. For those who've already done that, are you willing to ask God to empower you to love others sacrificially as Jesus loves you? Are you willing to redefine what love is, that it's not a response, it's not a good feeling, it's not an emotion, it is sacrifice? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to die to self to love others like Jesus? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we're... What I spoke falls short. I ask that your Holy Spirit would just speak in the midst of that. Whether you would speak to the hearts and minds of each and every person here today. And Lord, that you'd challenge us. 
with the greatness and beauty of what you have done. Lord, you have shown, you have demonstrated your love towards us in a way that is absolutely um, inescapable. It's a love unlike any other love for you willingly laid down your life for us. You call us friends when in reality we were living as your enemy. Lord, how can we find words to praise you for your goodness? Lord, show us how, and even more importantly, show us how to love others in deed and in truth as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.